0: Landline Radio Landline Radio I Energy No Filter Oh yeah. Okay, back in the studio with my buddy Dr. Brian Sweeney. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing good, Jeff. How are you today? Good. Should I call you Doctor Sweeney or <laughs> You don't no, you don't need to do that.
1: now Brian's fine.
0: I want to talk about um you've written some articles recently for the landmine, one about um, both about COVID, actually, one about kind of medical misinformation, and then the other one about you called the COVID foxhole. But first, I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, you've you used to write for the ADN, you're kind of known um, op ed person, and you have a lot of opinions about things. So, what's your, kind of your background? I know you were in the military, right? Yeah, my journalism background actually started
1: all the way back when I was in college. I actually uh, wrote for an off campus paper. Um, that produced conservatives much more famous than myself, uh, uh, produced Dinesh D'Souza, Laura Ingram. Uh, oh yeah. where, where was that at? Dartmouth review. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, Laura Ingram, Dinesh D'Souza, Harmeet Dillon, who people may see occasionally on TV, a civil rights attorney in California. Um, you know, and across the way over at the Dartmouth, uh, Jake Tapper was their adversary. Uh, I was merely just... Oh, a, the CNN guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, I mean, at the time, I mean, I didn't know, you know, when I was writing articles back then, I had no idea that the people around me were going to go on to those huge, giant careers in TV and... So this is undergrad. Uh, that was undergrad. Uh, and so that's that's when I started doing that. And then I went to medical school and uh, the ADN thing happened because... Matt Zensey, who was the editorial uh, editor at the time, I I sent him an email because he had uh, started a section of the paper and everybody on that section sort of leaned a certain way with a couple of exceptions, which I view not as a good thing. Uh, The other exceptions, one of them was like Jim Minnery. And uh, I told him, you know, everybody was writing anything on healthcare on there, definitely had a perspective kind of far to the left. I said, you need somebody on the right. It was like
0: early Early two thousands or mid
1: yeah somewhere in the mid, early mid two thousands and he sent me an email back and he said why don't you do it <laughs> and careful, I, careful what you ask for and I was I, I said let me get back to you and I thought about it for a couple of days because when you when you start as you know uh, when you start writing things you put yourself in the public eye mm-hmm. and you put crosshairs on yourself sometimes uh, um, grab, grab a little closer to the mic just uh, so but I so. went ahead and started doing it and I did that for a while it, it lasted. a... Just until just after Alice Rogoff bought the ADN and then they kind of realigned everything in
0: there. Was it a regular weekly? I mean, I recall seeing your stuff a lot back then.
1: I was a, I was allowed to write whenever I wanted to. I I tried to do it about once or twice a week. Um, You know, it was hard to come up with subjects. Sometimes I started mostly writing about medical stuff and then kind of expanded a little bit off of that. Um, So you're from, you're not from Alaska, right? I grew up in California. So you came here, so where'd you go to medical school? I went to Tufts Medical School. So you were military? after? I med- did a military scholarship, so that sent me to San
0: Antonio for six years, and then I moved up here in 2000. So the way it works, I guess you go to medical school, and then after that you decide kind of your your, your path, right? Right.
1: After In medical school, you decide what you want to do for a specialty. Uh, so I did an internal medicine residency and very quickly decided that I wanted to move beyond that into gastroenterology. And I did a gastroenterology fellowship, uh, and that's what I did for six years between the residency and fellowship in San Antonio. And then they moved me up here to what was Elmendorf at the time, is now J-Bear. When was that? That was 2000. And uh, I spent three years on base, and then I uh, broke out of there and went into private practice up here in 2003.
0: So you just decided, hey, I like Alaska. I'm gonna... When you came here, did you – Think you were going to stay, or did you have any plans for that? About the same time I moved up here, my parents moved up here. Uh, my dad
1: had been in practice in California for 20 years. Doctor? hmm What kind of doctor was he? He was a gastroenterologist as well. But
0: Ah, so you followed the...
1: He moved up here about the same time, and I was on base. He was out here, so I, I got out of the Air Force, and he and I practiced together for about eight years, uh, and then he retired.
0: So the gastroenterology, that's the, the guts, the stomach, that's like the... The thing everybody hates the, the the scope right every what's it called the, the screenings for the colonoscopies yeah uh,
1: it, that's primary what primarily what gastroenterologists do uh, although we obviously take care of a lot more than that uh, you know we do upper endoscopies as well we take care of a lot of conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and you know gastroesophageal reflux disease uh, but colorectal cancer screening is a big part of what we do
0: I've, I have this thing it's it's pretty uncommon and it seems to be really after I, I drink whiskey. But I have a little bit of the, I guess it's the acid reflux, you know, when you kind of get like the water coming up and it's, man, it's, it's pretty rare. And, and, but when you have it, it's like, I can't imagine there's people who like have that all the time or they live with that. If you look at the studies, most people will experience some type of reflux
1: episode, uh, you know, once every couple of months potentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, But people who get it regularly, it can be a real problem. Uh, And obviously we have medications for that. If you referred to the second article I wrote in the landmine, the proton pump inhibitors are, have become a mainstay of therapy for gastroesophageal reflux disease.
0: These are the kind of, predi- is this the monoclonal antibody or the, the kind of predator? No, that, that was, the whole first part of that article I was talking about a, a gastroenterology
1: drug to kind of demonstrate how science moves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the OZ, O's, O's, what's it called, OZ? Um, Meprazole. Meprazole. And, uh, but you know, interestingly enough, the one thing I did mention briefly in there was famotidine. Uh, there was some kind of bench science stuff that suggested famotidine might be able to have a clinical effect uh, against COVID. Uh, It never really has been studied very much. But one thing about famotidine is it's about as harmless as you get. That's Pepsid. That's its trade name. You can buy it over the counter. I I wouldn't necessarily recommend people take Pepsid, but if you're going to take something and you're not sure, may as well take a drug that's totally safe.
0: Um, So, So the recent article you wrote about medical misinformation you started off talking about um, AIDS in and, and the 80s and 90s and kind of how that, how that looked. And then some, you know, now it's, you said basically unless somebody's not on any drugs, it's pretty much more or less the drugs have been able to, to, to um, reduce or eliminate most of the, the side effects we, symptoms people saw in the 80s and 90s. Right. I mean, HIV doesn't get talked about much anymore. Uh, and the reason is because
1: we have very effective drugs that suppress the virus. People get infected with it. They essentially have a chronic disease. Uh, So you just don't see, you don't even hear the term AIDS. For those of us who were alive back in the 80s, I mean, uh, AIDS was scary. People were worried about it. It was killing people. Uh, Now you don't hear about it anymore. Uh, And that was essentially eliminated with pharmacological therapy. We don't have a vaccine for it. All we have is really good antiviral treatments that suppress the virus. And those people live mostly normal lives now.
0: I mean, what what always comes to mind for me is Magic Johnson.
1: Right. When Magic Johnson got diagnosed, we were kind of in that transition period where those drugs were just starting to come along and, uh, you know, AIDS AIDS ceased to be um, mentioned anymore because it, it no longer was really a disease. It was just a virus that people lived with. And and that's where we are now.
0: When I was pretty young. I was born in 84, but I remember the Magic Johnson thing. I think he had to stop playing in the NBA, right? It was like a big...
1: I think he came back and played in an all-star game or something uh, along those lines after he had actually been infected with the virus.
0: So so you're, you're in the article, you mentioned that because you were talking about COVID and how that kind of re- relates. And I think you, you wrote the article and a couple of days later, actually, the article came on the ADN with a bunch of doctors about this medical board. And I want to ask you about, you know, your, your premise was very interesting how... Um, science. People always talk about. I mean, people throw around the word science a lot, but you know, you mentioned some of these these um, conferences you go to, and in one year, what they're really recommending, the next year or two years later, they're saying don't use that because things change and information changes. And you know, specifically the, the ivermectin and the hydro hydro uh, hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of get your take on this, and then also this kind of new move, I guess, to go after the license of some of these doctors. The specific
1: example I always think of about a treatment that has gone back and forth uh, in gastroenterology is uh, the use of a biologic therapy with an immunosuppressive therapy. Specifically, we'll use a drug like infliximab, uh, which is an IV drug that uh, has antibodies against inflammatory uh, um, markers in, in the body, and then it'll also be combined with an immunosuppressant, which suppresses the immune system.
0: Is that the one where and, you said somebody was really thin and they couldn't get better? And No, well, no, I mean, I've, I, but basically what it,
1: what, what happened with that in GI is one year um, they were like, this is really good. This works really well. You need to do it come back to the meeting the next year. Well, we think that this combination is causing killer T-cell lymphomas. You must never, ever, ever do this. And then another year later, it's like, well, well, we're not really that worried about these killer T-cell lymphomas, so you can do it. And I think what it demonstrates is that um, science is the science is fluid. You get new studies. You find out new things about the drugs that you're using. Now, as it goes with COVID, I think when COVID first started, people – we're lost. I mean, it's like, what are you going to do about this virus? We don't have any way to treat it. We don't know exactly what's going on with it. And so, you know, th- there's a lot of talk do you use a ventilator? Do you not use a ventilator? A lot of people started using hydro- uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, based on very preliminary sort of data, a lot of bench science, and uh, this
0: is primarily um,
1: malari- is it malaria. Uh, yeah, and it also has some. You know, some of the rheumatologists use it for some uh, rheumatologic disorders, and it is used for malaria. Uh, so, but hydro. So hydro. Hydroxychloroquine got a lot of press. Um, you know, later ivermectin got press. It, it, it also was to be combined with azithromycin, which a lot of people may know as the z Uh So they were, you know, using azithromycin with the hydroxychloroquine. What's happened is as time has moved forward, uh, most of the studies on hydroxychloroquine have not shown um, benefit to the drug. It doesn't appear that people do much different if you give them the hydroxychloroquine. Is there harm? The only, Most of the side effects are gastrointestinal people get a lot of gastrointestinal side effects sometimes from the hydroxychloroquine uh, and there is some suggestion that there's an increased harm with it uh, in some studies part of the problem is we still don't have what I would consider to be the body of science to really look at hydroxychloroquine and answer the question and I would make the same argument about ivermectin I wouldn't use either one of them based on the data that's available and one of the main reasons I wouldn't is because you have monoclonal antibody therapy available which does appear to be effective
0: um, and see, that what's interesting is hydroxychloroquine seemed to kind of take off when Trump mentioned it. And, and it was kind of, everybody was like, oh my God, this is, this is horrible. But then the monoclonal antibodies, as I recall, DeSantis in Florida was kind of the early, one of the early ones talking about that. And that was seen as, as to some like a hydroxychloroquine, oh, it's, it's a joke. But then Biden mentioned it. And it got more, for whatever reason, now that seems to be like the standard. I mean, everybodys I think everybody seems to agree that monoclonal antibodies are, are a really good therapy. Yeah, the monoclonal antibodies were
1: available well before DeSantis mentioned it. Uh, they were being given here well before DeSantis mentioned it. Uh, I do think the data behind those is much stronger than, you know, hydroxychloroquine or uh, ivermectin uh, or any of the other outpatient therapies. There's some inpatient therapies that people are using uh, um you know antiviral therapies uh, and some of the, the interesting thing about that is that a lot of those studies a lot of the studies on those drugs which nobody has said anything bad about it's not real clear outcomes are much different if you use those drugs not necessarily bad side effects but it, it's not clear they improve outcomes unless you parse out certain populations you know mm-hmm. people who required, you know, like, did they get steroids? Did they were they on high flow or low flow oxygen? You know, so if you parse out certain groups, it does appear you now, get a benefit.
0: Now, what they say, my understanding is for the monoclonal antibodies, that's when you first get it when you're not very sick. Is that kind of right? My understanding of the literature is that you need to get that therapy on early if you want it to be effective. See, I, I never, I had heard. Of, I have a friend who has an autoimmune thing, and he he for years had been on different drugs, and, and at some point he got it on a monoclonal antibody treatment that's why I first heard about it. That's years ago. And it's like a God, it's a godsend for him. I mean, it's just the best thing. So I have this nasal, nasal polyps, I think I've told you about. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like rhinocitis and it's just, I've had surgeries and I've even gone to Russia and they've like removed them with a snare because, you know, when it's really bad, you can't really breathe. But when it's even not that bad, you can't smell. And the quality of life is, so for a long time, I was just going to my doctor list. You might know it, Providence. He has an office there. He's an ENT. And he was just doing these, um. These, what's it called? It's a, it's a steroid injection, um, in, directly into the polyp, and they were gonna work for like three or four months, and then and it, would, it would you know have to go back. So I'm in there a while a while back earlier in the year, and he said there's this new treatment. It's a monoclonal antibody called Dupixent, that was originally used for, um, they had invented it for dermatitis, and I guess they found that it inhibits some some um, some proton. Um, I forget what it's called, and I tried it, and it was like a, it was like the next day I could smell. I've been using it ever since. I mean, and it's, I understand the technology, it's very expensive, but I mean, this kind of medicine seems to be the future of a lot of these, these conditions, right? These, Uh, a lot of the biologic therapies in my field, for example, I mentioned
1: infliximab, a lot of the biologic therapies have revolutionized the way that we treat Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, a lot of, uh, a lot of disorders now, a lot of, a lot of the rheumatological disorders, dermatology stuff that's autoimmune we have biologic therapies, which are antibodies against, uh, you know, inflammatory uh, producing um, substances in the body. And so they've really revolutionized the treatment of, uh, of a lot of diseases. Uh, so I think that and more and more, I think that we're going to see more and more of those come out. We've, had, we've got a lot of them against cancers now um, that do a lot of great things. They have side effects. They're not, they're not perfect meds, but um, they've really changed the ability. The interesting thing is when I was in medical school, um, people would talk about what if you could develop a drug that could target specifically what you want to target. And that's essentially what an antibody does. And uh, that's what's happened um, with a lot of these antibodies. The thing is, is that they're not perfect targets targets they can also get after other stuff and cause other autoimmune problems so i think
0: the one i i'm pretty sure it's interleukin too like it targets the interleukin some protein i don't even know what that is but
1: i'm i'm not familiar with the the drug you're on because it's not you know used in a lot of gi settings but uh we do have a ustakininab which is a drug we use for crohn's disease. and I believe it just got FDA approved for ulcerative colitis, which goes after a couple of interleukins. I believe IL-12 and IL-23. I mean, it's
0: incredible. I mean, I've dealt with this for years, since I was like 18, 19, I had allergies growing up. And then, you know, you do, th- it's like you go through not being able to smell and the quality of life and the surgeries and this ken- Kenalog injection I was having to get, and it was just not fun. And then all of a sudden, every two weeks you shoot this thing into your leg and it's just like, it's like a game changer for somebody like me who who can now smell all the time and you know, it's expensive though. That's the thing is luckily there's, you know, some they can help out with that a little bit and there's the insurance, but it's not, these aren't cheap, are they? Uh, they're
1: not. Uh, you know, it, that's a, that's a discussion at some point people need, you know, need to have about drug costs. Cause I think drug costs are, have become 30% of all medical expenses in the United States. Uh, and that's a big, big jump from where it used to be. And pharmacology is becoming a bigger and bigger piece of the, uh, high um, in terms of what's getting spent and that's becoming a problem for physicians because if we want to put people on these drugs we often have to get pre-authorization from the insurance the insurances obviously don't want to pay for some of those drugs because they're so expensive Uh, you know that's that's actually been a target for a lot of you know political um, rambling in dc to try to improve some of those i I
0: understand the research and some of the the r d costs are huge and they have to recoup that but you know, I mean, I lived in Australia. I've spent time in other countries. And even Canada, like, you get these same drugs for way cheaper. And and I, are, are we taking the, sometimes people say, they say we're taking the burden of the R&D costs, or there, there's... I think we are
1: taking the burden of the R&D cost uh, to a large degree. Uh, a lot of prices are set by governments. Uh, so Australia sets the price for the drug. You know, Canada sets the price for the drug. Uh, there are some... It's a long discussion, but there's a lot of problems in the United States. You know, once you get your patent, you've got it for 15 years from the approval date. Um, but there's also laws on the books that keep drug companies from bringing the price of that drug down because they're the government will actually force them to pay back the difference in the drug cost if they lower the price of the drug. If the government bought that drug at a higher cost mm-hmm. for the previous, you know, five years, it'd be like you or me walking into Best Buy buying a widescreen TV. And we end up uh, going back there three years later because it's cheaper and saying, you owe me that money that I gave yeah. you for the." And, and, you know, there, there's laws on the books like that um, that are problematic uh, that uh, you know have an effect on that. Um, I think it's a very involved problem. I mean, certainly if drug companies could negotiate uh, if drug companies were forced to negotiate for, um, the cost of the drug with Medicare, for example, you, you'd probably bring down the cost of a lot of these drugs quite a bit. But obviously the drug companies don't want that because it's less profit. Well, I mean, I,
0: I love to, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but the amount of money they spend on lobbyists in and, and DC, I'm sure it's in the you know hundreds of millions or maybe it's billion, who knows how much it is total spend on this stuff to make sure they keep things the way, and that's you know every issue in this country now. It's Well,
1: it, I, it also can feed kind of people, you know, uh, for example, I think, the vaccines. The vaccines are a good thing. The vaccines appear to be preventing. Uh, there's a New England Journal of Medicine article, randomized controlled trial. Clearly, the vaccines, or at least the Pfizer vaccine in that particular study, is reducing infections, reducing hospitalizations, and reducing deaths. Uh, but <coughs> Pfizer's made billions of dollars off the vaccine. Um, and, you know, so there, there's a. I I do think it should be approved for for boosters for everybody. Uh should be approved for children who want to get it.
0: I I mean, I think it's, I think everybody would agree that those companies should make a profit, Correct. any company should make when they do something. But, you know, I mean, the question is, and I think when I I say something like this or anybody, you know, how much is too much profit? The the response is, oh, are you a communist? Are are you a socialist? Well, no, but at some point, you know, there's there's the market, but then there's also kind of, you know, the manipulation of the market and what's happening with these runaway costs, especially in pharmaceuticals. So. I don't know what the answer is, but I think probably some more government intervention or regulation is probably the answer. I, part of the problem, uh, you know, in DC lately, you know,
1: with the Build Back Better plan, there's been this talk that this isn't going
0: to cost anything. Well, um, you know, they just put out a chart, Ratner, Steve, Steve Ratner, about the truth about what that's going right. to cost, but, and but, it's not, but, it's not nothing. What, what
1: happens is I'll, see a, I'll have a pharmaceutical rep come to my office and they will say, you know, I want you to use drug X, right? And they will say, well, if they use this coupon or they use this, the cost to the patient is nothing, right? The problem <laughs> is what's the cost to the system? And that's what I'll often tell them. I go, I don't care if it costs the patient, you know, what it costs the patient, you know, that's important, but how much is it costing the system? And uh, we need to start thinking like that. You know, it, it's not free. That drug's not free. Somebody's paying for it. You know, you, me, the government, the insurer, somebody.
0: Well, and this is what I've talked to other doctors about. And, and I think I did a recently with what well, was a while back with Ann Zink. We talked about this country and how we have each, each state has their own system. And even, even some, you know, local governments have their own. So like the vaccine, if I get vaccinated here, and I go to Florida or Iowa, they have no, it's all separate. At some point they had the national guard helping entry and enter data. So everything's disconnected in all these systems in this country. And I mean, just the cost of, of just managing all this information throughout 50 States as is, is, and, and the, the, the lack of information that, that exists because of it is astounding.
1: Part of the uh, part of the affordable care act was to sort of advance you know, electronic medical records. Uh, mm-hmm. The problem has been that getting those electronic medical records to communicate with each other, and that has been a slow process. Uh, there were incentives out there, so companies jumped all in, they all make their own electronic medical records, and then you can't get them to talk to each other. Uh, I distinctly remember a bunch of physicians when Mark Begich was a senator. And we were—he was saying, "Well, all we have to do is push EMRs, and all the they'll, everybody will be able to talk to each other." I don't think he really understood that if you have a hundred different electronic medical records out there, it takes a lot of work to get them to talk to each other. And that's getting better. Uh, Alaska actually has a, a game plan for that um, that they've implemented, uh, and and hopefully that will improve. Um, but what you what you say is a good point. You know, if I see a patient. Um, you know, who was seen, had all their care in the lower 48 for the last 20 years. It's hard for me to find those records sometimes. I mean,
0: this is the, a lot of people, not Canada or England or Australia, but, you know, the, Israel, those countries with the national systems, um, I read an article about some of the reason reasons they're able to get the data out on COVID so much easier is because they have a national system where they can much more easily get the data. Where here we have not, na- it's, it's 50 different systems and sometimes even more than that when it's local.
1: I've been known to make an argument that the U.S. Postal Service maybe doesn't work very well anymore, but maybe what you need for medical information is something like the Postal Service is a a standard electronic medical record that everybody would use. But if you're one of these companies that's built an electronic medical record, you're not going to want that.
0: You don't want want to lose your customers or your your, your
1: fees. Uh, So I I think that's an uphill battle. Um, uh, But... I, I do think that better communication
0: between electronic medical records would be very helpful. So I wanted to ask. So so you've you've come out. You've said you know, get the vaccine. Um, I think you've kind of said you know the mask is wear the mask. It's probably my understanding. is probably not the you know cure all, but it probably doesn't doesn't hurt. Um, and you you know you're I'd say perceived definitely as a conservative. How how much of that have you had any blowback from that from people that say why are you you know because a lot of now the folks are. On the right, sometimes it's like, no, don't get a vaccine. It's all conspiracy. It's biotech. It's government. Well, one thing I will tell you
1: after writing for the paper for seven years and, you know, doing some other things is that if you if you take a position, at least in, in modern day America, somebody's coming after you, uh, you know, and, and that's just kind of the way it is. I think the thing that gets me about masks is whether or not you believe they work a lot. And I'm not so sure how well. I don't think the data is super strong. I think they probably help some. Uh, If you're going to wear a mask, you're probably better off wearing a higher level mask than just a cloth mask. What I don't understand is why people have a problem if they are walking into cars or Fred Meyer, you know, to pick up a few things. You're going to be wearing the mask for at most 30 minutes. You know, it's Uh 30 minutes out of your life. And if by wearing the mask, you make the people around you more comfortable, even if you don't agree with them, I, I just don't see a problem... With wearing the mask. I, I don't think it's worth falling on your sword over. Uh, and uh, and if it, if it does help, then all the better. Um, and I do think masks help, especially if people were to wear higher level masks. I, I think the Delta variant uh, has been a little bit quicker to spread despite masks. You know, I think the data on masks is all over the place. Um, but I, I don't see any harm in people wearing them. And there's possibly some benefit.
0: Well, I mean, I wear them in the airplane or if someone says to wear it, I wear it. I'm kind of on, on, on part of the, I'm, I'm in the belief of if you got the vaccine and this was early on what they said, if you got the vaccine, you're good. But then this Delta thing changed and now, now it's kind of even an Anchorage, they've redid the mask mandate, which I think is nobody's really fa- I mean, some people are falling, but I go out and see places like it's, it's really, it, after all the, the, the clamor from each side, yelling and screaming, nothing really changed. It's, 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 it's kind of just crazy how, how nothing changed, but how, how, Pissed off everybody was for, for three weeks.
1: I, I would agree with that. I don't see many people wearing uh, masks in, indoors in some places. Uh, we've been wearing masks in my office, even when there wasn't a mask mandate. Uh, I, I feel like it was, you know, it makes patients more comfortable. Um, I, I, if there is some benefit to it, great. I, I, I would go back to what I said in that first article I wrote, and that I think social distancing is more important. If you really don't want to get COVID, you got to stay away from people. I mean that that's the bottom line I mean if you if you're interacting with people mask or no mask and you're putting yourself in crowds especially indoors
0: you're gonna put yourself at risk of getting it the vaccine's gonna protect you but it's not gonna protect you completely I mean Um, so I got the Moderna in uh, March and April and I I don't know if you saw I I posted I got really the first one I was a little tired the second one next day I was very sick you know fever chills um you know hot you know muscle aches I mean almost like that half kind of you're sleeping, but you're not, and you're kind of almost hallucinating because I was really high fever. And then the next day I felt fine. So it kind of was a quick one. But back then I said, you know, this is before the booster was even really, it was maybe a thought, but I just said, I'm not getting any more of this shit because I was so sick. And I was like, that was my reaction. Now, now you know, with the Delta thing and the, the data going back to the science, I mean, it shows very clearly that the people who are vaccinated are not the ones really going to the hospitals and getting really sick. So... I went ahead and made the decision on Sunday. I got it, and yesterday I was really tired. I wasn't sick, but I was just kind of lethargic. And today, you know, I'm I'm good. So, I feel like now that I've I've I dove in and got it, I may as well just. But the question is, do you think they're they're gonna keep coming like the flu shot? Is this going to be a, a flu shot thing?
1: I I don't think anybody can answer that question right now. Uh, the New England Journal uh, article I talked about, I think that was a six month follow up uh, where they you know were looking at hospitalizations, deaths. I Is it going to be like the flu shot where you have to get it every six months to a year? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't think anybody really can give you an answer to that. Um, One problem, if you have more people getting infected and you have the virus spreading more, you probably have a higher chance of another mutation forming.
0: Well, so Dr. Fauci was on um, the uh, Daily Show a couple days ago. I listened to it. And he was really hesitant to say anything too specific because he was telling Michael Babaro, the host, that, you know, everything I say, it's taken out of context. But at one point, there was a conversation about, he said, it's either going to burn itself out, or we're going to vaccinate our way out of it, kind of either one, kind of like the Spanish flu. But, But then I've also heard about this, maybe another variant, which changes the game, right? Well, one time, one of the ways that
1: viruses go away is a variant may come up that actually is less of a problem. And will infect people and make them immune, but not kill us,
0: or 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 more deadly, right? And then they it's possible. And then it burns if it's too deadly, then it can't get a the host
1: correct. Then the host dies before they spread it. Um, but but a lot of viruses will sometimes mutate into a less virulent form, uh, a, a form that is less lethal, um, but will build immunity across. It just becomes a a disease that's less of a problem. And if you look historically, that's happened with a lot of viruses and even bacteria over the years where they've sort of um, become less lethal um, diseases and that may happen with COVID I don't think anybody know nobody can predict what's going to happen with the virus moving forward there there's no way to know what it may do another variant may form that beats all of our vaccines for all we know um, you know so
0: oh wow just <laughs> oh
1: I, I mean, that's that's a possibility. I mean, I don't think you can, you know, discount that as a possibility. Yeah, I, I think right now, um, people who are vaccinated, they're getting infected. Some of them are, you know. Uh, I've seen numbers as high as, you know, somewhere between 20 to 30% of the cases in some areas are, are vaccinated.
0: Oh, patients. I know someone right now, her, her husband got, he's pretty sick. Not not hospital sick, but he's been out for, I think, over, over a week, and he was vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But not hospital, but just tired, fever, just really kind of, you know, just... Kind of dragging really bad. You can get sick with the virus, even if you've been
1: vaccinated, but you definitely improve your odds of not ending up in the hospital and dying
0: um, by a lot, 17 times, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, better risk. Why, why do you think, and I know some of this goes back to Jenny McCarthy and the autism, and this has been this vaccination thing for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, but, you know, when I grew up and it was like, you know, hepatitis and, and you know, um, tetanus, Tdap, all, you know, all the polio. I mean, that was just like, everybody well, just got those. That was- I was...
1: I think you have to ask the question, uh, and keep in mind, I'm not a Donald Trump fan, but you got to ask the question, if Donald Trump was still president, would a lot of these people who are resisting the vaccine be resisting the vaccine? I don't know the answer to that. Um, there's a lot of minority groups that for a long time were resisting the vaccine um, who probably didn't vote for Donald Trump, so yeah. it, it can't be all that, But but I do wonder about it, because we both know that Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris were both um, making statements that they didn't want to do the Trump vaccine before the vaccine came out. So, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, they they get into power and they change their tune. Um, So I I do think that some of the resistance to this specific vaccine uh, uh, is political uh, as opposed to um, any other potential cause. I, I do think there's some of that going
0: on. So you mentioned this in your piece you recently wrote for for the landmine, but and now we see this article about there's a mm-hmm. medical board meeting, um, board of medicine meeting I think Friday, Friday, and there's a letter from a bunch of doctors and they're essentially saying, well, we should we should take the licenses away of some of these doctors who are doing things they don't think is good. You know, when is it appropriate to take I mean take away? I and mean, at some point, somebody does something really bad, but but in this case, they're they're doing things that you know might not be bad but they might not be kind of with the mainstream like when, when is it appropriate to look at someone's license and do you think what's going on now is is wrong I this has been already
1: started in other states uh, and it actually one of the things that got mentioned in that letter is the American Board of Internal Medicine, the American Board of Family Practice and the American Academy of Pediatrics had a joint statement where they basically sent it out to their members, um, mentioning that state medical boards were doing this and also saying that if you spread misinformation, you could be threatening your board certification uh, as well. And I think the problem is how you define misinformation. That's what I was gonna ask, what is misinformation? Uh, I, I, You know, I, I th- specifically they seem to be targeting the meeting um, that Mayor Bronson had where they talked about a lot of these therapies um, I don't know, I didn't go to the meeting, I'm sure.
0: That's you, what that Chinese doctor, I think, and then the other, the other. there's three or four doctors right. that came up and-
1: And there were a couple of do- local doctors that I think spoke at the meeting. Uh, you know, I, I look at it this way. Uh, ultimately, as a patient, your responsibility is to determine whether or not you trust your doctor and you go and you talk to your doctor and you listen to what your doctor has to say. Um, and a lot of times all doctors, every single one of us, has used a therapy uh, that is not FDA approved for a disease um, or a treatment that's not, you know, approved for a disease.
0: That's the, um, the off-label they call it? Or? Yeah,
1: I mean, off-label, off-label use of drugs is probably even most of what we do a lot of times. Uh, you know, here, you know, I mean, the question is, you know, are they spreading misinformation, you know, specifically about drugs, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, are they spreading misinformation about vaccines? My issue with it is that I I would not use hydroxychloroquine. I would not use ivermectin. I think people should get vaccines. Question is, can you make a legitimate argument uh, on some of those um, topics by using the medical literature? Uh, And I think you probably can. It may not be an argument I would agree with. And I think we go to a dangerous place if we start Uh, saying that, well, we're going to say if you're outside the lines on these specific therapies that we're going to take your license away, well, what's next? You know, if I use a therapy that's not FDA approved for something else, am I putting my license at risk? I I think it's a legitimate question. Um, And I can tell you that, you you know, I mean, I'm not a believer in slippery slope fallacies, but literally a lot of what we do is not is not FDA sanctioned for the use of the drug that we're using uh, and it's also you know we don't always follow clinical guidelines um, you know for example if I do a colonoscopy based on what I find I'm supposed to bring that person back by guidelines at three years five years ten years uh, you know sometimes I might bring that person back a little earlier or I may not bring them back quite as quick you know based on other characteristics of the patient um, most of the time I'm right on the money with the guidelines but but, you know, it, I think that it's a dangerous place to go if you uh, if you start threatening people's board certifications and their licensure to, you know, over what you consider to be misinformation.
0: Well, I mean, it feels in some ways almost kind of Soviet. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we want to deal with you. So we're going to have the government tell people, you know, you're bad. And I mean, I think there's definitely cases if somebody's prescribing crazy stuff or if they're doing th- crazy things, I mean, there's. Definitely been cases where somebody's messed up so bad they've lost their license. I mean, there's a reason that people are licensed, but
1: well, the the NIH maintains a database on fulminant hepatic failure, you know, liver failure uh, due to supplements that people take, uh, and every year they add more and more cases to that um, database, and uh, some of those supplements are prescribed by physicians, um, some of them are prescribed by Natural pass occasionally, you know, some people use some of that stuff for weightlifting. And, um, you know, the, the bottom line is, there's a lot of things that people do that are get that are recommended um, by physicians that you could make an argument aren't, aren't good things. And it goes beyond COVID. Um, and, and ultimately, I do think people have to be responsible for trusting their physician and understanding what they're doing. And if, if they don't, they have legal remedies. I mean, they, they, can, they can turn around and, you know, sue the provider for malpractice if they think, you know, that's what was going on. Um, and then I think the state medical board will take notice of, of something like that. You know, if somebody gets sued 10 times in three years or something like that, I, you know, I think a state medical board's going to notice.
0: What about, you know, this last month, this uh, William Topel guy who was at one of the meetings and I knew the guy for a long time, nice guy, you know, he, he wasn't vaccinated, got sick, died. And this whole, he was in the hospital and this Jamie Allard letter and there was this whole thing where his friends and and maybe even him, it sounds like wanted ivermectin. And at what point can the patient, and I've had other doctors tell me one of the things I hate the most is WebMD because the patients will come in and they'll say, well, I read this and this and this and this. I want this. So when does a patient get to direct? Because I I trust my doctor because they have the education and the knowledge. But a lot of times you can read all this stuff and you can go in there and say, I want this. What's the answer to that? How does that work? I think that's a good question. I, I I
1: think that there's two sides to that story. The doctor doesn't feel comfortable prescribing the drug uh, and that's what the patient wants. Then the patient should have the right to ask for a different doctor, um, you know, who might um, prescribe the drug.
0: To that's, them. that's. I think that's very possible in this society, country, um, you can go to a different doctor. You know, I, I'm
1: not all that familiar with what happened. Um, there were two hospitals in town involved with that. Um You know, he was at one hospital. There was talk about switching him to the other hospital. Uh, I I think part of the problem is, you know, we're talking about medical boards and we're talking about, you know, professional um, boards. Uh, Hospitals have policies too. And, um, you know, if a physician has a patient in the hospital and they don't want to prescribe the drug because they don't think it works, uh, I think that's within the physician's right to not
0: prescribe the drug. Um, So what's this? You keep hearing this, and I don't know if it's even a real thing, but this right to try, they say right to try state. I've heard that from several, Laura Reinbold's talked about it, other elected officials. What does that mean? Is that a thing?
1: There, there are laws on the books that will allow you to get treatments that are not FDA approved or maybe experimental um, in special cases where there's really no other options. Um, and I guess the question would be, if you have a COVID case, is that a case where you don't have any other options? Mm-hmm. Um you know, I what I'm going to tell you about ivermectin is up until about two months ago, India was using it. It was in their guidelines of stuff to use. Eventually, they looked at it and they determined that it wasn't making a difference.
0: And, and this is, um, there's all this horse dewormer talk, but I mean, it also is used for humans. So that's the first thing when I heard about it, I went and looked um, and I read. You know, it's, it's used for you know, pigs and cows and all that and horses, but it's also used for humans. So correct. what's it actually, is is it the same thing with humans? Is, is it this deworming or is it something else?
1: It's used for parasites in humans. Uh, the interesting thing is the, the biggest side effects with ivermectin in humans when it's used uh, are dermatologic. Pretty bad dermatologic side effects sometimes. But my understanding, I've never prescribed ivermectin. Never had the reason to because we're not talking about, you know, parasites aren't a big problem in the United States. Had usually. you heard about it
0: before this whole thing kind of became a
1: on i'd heard of ivermectin but you know i heard about it in medical school and i was taking a pharmacology course and it's like oh that's one of those drugs i'm never going to use because i'm probably never going to see you know the disease um and, uh, you know, int- incidentally, I recently saw a Strongyloides case. And I'm going to... So what's that? That's another parasite. Um, and you don't see it very often in the United States. Um, you know, so... Uh, Str- uh, Strongyloides? Strongyloides. Is that like uh, a worm? Or? It is. It's a parasite. Um, it's got oh like four or five different species. And it, it can actually get in um, various methods in, uh, into your... Uh, into your... Um, both your urinary system, your digestive tract can get up into your liver. Um, it's bad? It's bad? Um it, a lot of people with it are asymptomatic but it can be bad it can also get into your brain
0: um, I saw I saw a thing years ago on some TV where people were taking it on purpose they were getting these parasites or worms so they could lose weight which the well, doctor on the show was I, like this is crazy I
1: got one better for you there was a look, a look some people were looking at tapeworms as a potential treatment for inflammatory bowel disease for a while Uh, so, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff up there, but getting back to the ivermectin thing, my understanding is a lot of the side effects that happen with ivermectin when you use it to treat the parasites is that when it kills the parasites, it leaves pieces of the parasite behind. And then the body's reaction to those pieces of the parasite is the main cause of the dermatologic problems that people get. Rashes are um,
0: like correct, peeling skin, know, or
1: right, like autoimmune rash kind of stuff, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I've never used the drug, uh, so I've never, you know, I, I mean, you get a much better feel for drugs if you use them all the time. And I think part of the problem with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, they're, they're I mean, hydroxychloroquine gets used quite a bit, um, but. You know, ivermectin, I bet you most Alaska
0: physicians had never written a prescription for ivermectin. I bet you the whoever makes ivermectin is probably loving this shit. This. They're actually not. They've actually come out and said, please don't use our drug for this. I mean, I... Well, Mer- Merck said that don't use it for COVID, right? Yeah. But, I, but I, I just mean the... I'm sure there was a lot more stuff being sold. Because I have a friend who's in Fairbanks who... he he's a, he's a farm. And, you know, he has that stuff for the pigs and the horses. And he had literally had people calling him and, and messaging him saying, I know you have this stuff. I want some of it. And he's like... I, no, well, we're well, well, not giving you that.
1: We're getting into the Joe Rogan question here, where Joe Rogan got really upset because CNN said he was using a horse dewormer, right, yeah. and he was actually using the human version of it. If if somebody is, and I would not recommend they use ivermectin, but if they're gonna go and they use it, they they should at least try to get the drug that's designed for human. Well, he was prescribed it too. He wasn't. Yep. He didn't just go and get it somewhere. That's he correct. Was he had a doctor that. that prescribed it to him. And I, I I do I think going back to the the question here though. If there's a physician who feels that ivermectin works, um, I don't think there's a, there, there's nothing in the studies that I've seen of, of ivermectin that says that it's dangerous to give the drug to somebody with COVID. Most of the studies are, are, don't show any difference in outcomes, um, you know, so that means the drug's not effective, but is it dangerous? I wouldn't do it because it's not effective
0: based on what we know. Um, but there are some clinical trials I think still going on with it. What's um, so the one you mentioned before? I think you mentioned it earlier, but there was some other drug that's not as known. You wrote about it in the article that might be have have some positive. Well, the outcome. thing
1: the thing that caught my eye when a, a lot of this started was uh, there was some preliminary data that famotidine, which is uh, another acid suppression medication, uh, it blocks. Uh, H2 um, uh, receptors, which are histamine receptors, uh, which are found in the stomach. Uh, But there was some data out there that it might have a mechanism that could help in COVID. And the thing about Pepsid is it's about as harmless a drug as you can get. I mean, you can buy it over the counter. It it really has minimal side effects. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend people take famotidine because we don't have any data to suggest that it would be effective or not, but we have a potential bench science, uh, idea that it might do something. Um, and since it's harmless uh, for the, mo- you know, no drugs completely harmless, but since it has a very good side effect profile, um, you know, that's something people, you know, I mean, if they popped Pepsid over the counter, I don't see any large downside oh. to that. I mean, people, people take medications over the counter all the time for stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes they get themselves into trouble taking stuff over the counter. Uh, but, but Fomotidine actually had some you know, data. It, it fell out of the news quickly, um, and I haven't seen anything more on it in a while. Um, but, but yeah, it was there. Um, colchicine was actually looked at. I, I saw awesome. some. What's that? It's a gout drug. It's um, for the foot, right? Yeah, it, it actually inter, it interferes with um, spindle formation in white cells, if I remember right, from my pharmacology in, uh, in medical school. And I, I just saw that for the first time today that some people were suggesting colchicine could be used. I, I think the bottom line here, the, the main concern that's been brought up by a lot of the physicians who wrote that letter is if somebody opts to take ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or something else, they may be ignoring a better therapy like the monoclonal antibody therapy. And I think that's a legitimate, um, a legitimate beef. Um, I think, I, th- I do think it's the responsibility of doctors to present people with what their options are when they've got a disease. I
0: mean, some of these doctors, um, the, ma- the main one, I guess, being Eleanor Farr, she she goes on the radio all the time. Yeah. She's on um, Dan Fagan, I've heard her on, Mike Procaro, and she's talk- she, she she talks about ivermectin and all these vitamin. I mean, she talks about mm-hmm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, m- maybe, I don't know if that's, if you're making more of, like you said, when you write something, when you're vocal, maybe you're more of a target. Um, there's also Dr. Um, Oh my gosh, what's his name? He's on Mike Picaro once a week. Keesling. Keesling. He goes on there too. So so they're talking and saying things. So I don't know if that makes it, you know, easier for someone to say. Well, they said this on the radio or a podcast compared to somebody who's just doing their work and not really making making it or talking about it vocally in the public. Well, you know the the vitamin the vitamin argument specifically vitamin D and you know some of the other
1: you know zinc has been mentioned and that kind of stuff. I would kind of put that even even further on to the safe side of, of like the famotidine I mentioned. You know, I mean, I
0: got COVID last December, and I just got a test to go to Hawaii, so I was asymptomatic when I got it. and I was like, you know, fuck, I can't go to Hawaii now. But <laughs> I, I did the kind of vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc. I mean, I thought, well, what the hell does that? Those are good to take anyway, so I did that. Right. I don't, I never got sick. I never got any symptoms. Was that? Did that help? I don't yeah, know. I mean, well, but it didn't hurt.
1: What, what you just mentioned is anecdote, and I think that's part of the problem. Like, if you say, okay, I gave – I gave you know a hundred patients ivermectin, and none of them got sick. Well, you don't know what would have happened if you hadn't given them ivermectin mm-hmm. you know you know I, and I think the, the, the problem with a lot of these therapies, including a lot of the therapies that are less controversial and being used as inpatients and stuff, is that we're still we're still in the infancy of learning a lot about this disease and uh, so you know, I mean hydra, as far as I can tell, um, and I, I do go looking, you know hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. They don't they don't appear to help outcomes, but it's not really clear to me how dangerous they are. Mm-hmm. There is some there was some concerns that hydroxychloroquine was causing some GI side effects, and and I will tell you that hydroxychloroquine causes um, problems in patients. I can't and, and I know that because I've seen people on hydroxychloroquine over the years. I've I've never seen a patient on ivermectin. You know I've probably looked at you know, um, 60,000 medless in my career. And I've never seen ivermectin on one. Um, <laughs> you know,
0: so. I, never, I never heard about it until you know, uh, five, month, five months ago or when it was a thing. Um, I wanted to ask you about, now we've talked about the vaccines, how the studies show very clearly that the folks that are going into the hospitals and, and being really sick and hospitalized are, are vastly unvaccinated. Um, without trying to sound too morbid, I mean, if someone doesn't get the vaccine who qualifies and gets sick, I mean, it's kind of on them. Right, I, mean, I don't think we should let him die. We should try to help him, but but it, it just it frustrates me. Is I have a lot of friends who aren't getting it because they for whatever reason, which is fine, but but if they get sick, you know, I mean, it's it sounds kind of morbid to say, well, sorry, but you know, wh- what's what's the what's the answer there? Well, especially if the hospitals are full and somebody's coming in with another problem, an accident, a car accident, a rock climb, whatever, and skiing, and then they're full because there's all these people in there haven't been vaccinated i mean that, to me that seems kind of selfish I, I i hear what you're saying but they made a bad choice in that they
1: didn't get the vaccine and the hospitals are always filled with people that made bad choices you see a lot of people that That's a good point yeah. abuse tobacco you see a lot of people that abuse alcohol um you know as a gastroenterologist you know, pancreatitis and uh, cirrhosis are huge um, diseases in my field. And they're almost all, I mean, the, the number one cause of both of those in the United States is probably alcohol. You know, uh, so, you know, alcohol is a problem. tobacco's a problem. Um, you know, obviously, we have a, nar- a narcotic thing going on uh, in this country. Uh, that may not be completely those patients fault because they Probably had to start somewhere with that, yeah. um, but but you know people make bad choices, and I think part of being a good doctor is that you can't judge that person for their bad choice.
0: Well, I guess the response is if you're drinking too much, you know, say, say, you know, say driving, drinking and driving, but they smoking or doing these things. This is really affecting you, Where, whereas if you're you know not getting, the, you could potentially get somebody else sick, I guess, or you could you could go into a hospital that's already full because hospitals are full. And somebody else might not. Be. I had a friend, um, Matt Tomter, who owns Matt and Iska Company. He got, he got a, panc- a pancre, panc- pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a few months ago. We did a video or interview here about it. And he went to regional, and there was one bed left. And you know, he, he, luckily they were able to not have to do the appendicitis or the appendix surgery right away. They can put it off. But he was saying, you know, it's kind of crazy. There was one bed left in the whole hospital, and, and a lot of the people in there were from from COVID. Right. I, I would love everybody to get vaccinated. Uh, I.
1: I do think we're reaching a point now where a lot of people out there who are not vaccinated are completely resistant. I totally to agree. The I mean, you, maybe marginally um, you get a few more, but I, you know, I, I, have to ask everybody in my office every day, cause if I'm scheduling a procedure, I need to know if they're vaccinated or not. And, uh, I bet they, I bet they hate that some it, of them, right? Well, the people who aren't vaccinated, I, I try to have the conversation with them. You know, I, I, try to tell them, look, if you get the vaccine, you're less likely to end up in the hospital. You're less likely to die. And I think you can even tell them now you're less likely to get the um, to get infected. But uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they've definitely um, that the people that are left are hardcore against that vaccine. And I, I don't know if there's any way to change yeah. their mind. Um, I don't think a mandate's going to change their mind. I, I I don't know what we're going to do. Oh No, I agree. I, I'm not a
0: fan of the. I, I, I mean, I guess on the other hand, you know, we have for schools for a long time, and there's been exceptions here and there, but. Um, I'm not a fan of the mandate. I think that would dig people in even further to not get it.
1: I think part of the problem is that if you tell somebody, you know, the difference between this vaccine um, and other vaccines is that uh, if you, when you do your vaccines when you're a kid, you're getting vaccines against stuff that nobody ever gets anymore because we've successfully eradicated those diseases. Um, Polio. You know, we don't we don't even have to give the smallpox vaccine anymore because we essentially eradicated it from the planet with a yep. vaccine. Um, but you know, you get your tetanus
0: shot every ten years. You know, or, or is it five year? Five. five I think I'm it's ten sure. maybe. Because I remember I got one years ago. I uh, stepped on a nail in a cabin. Know. And
1: but but the bottom line, you know, we have vaccines for hepatitis A and hepatitis B. You know, we we have uh, and and we've done a really good dent worldwide in hepatitis B. We haven't gotten rid of it, but it's amazing what that vaccine's done it was even small
0: po- I mean when I was a kid or sorry chicken pox when I was a kid we didn't have the vaccine I remember the chicken pox party mm-hmm. um I, I don't know I mean maybe the vaccine's good for, for me it seems like I, I think there's a question about later on and, and nowadays when there's so much money out there I mean how much of these you know the polio the, the measles the, I mean these are proven I think that's that's fine but like some of the newer ones like I think it is okay to say well do we what's the purpose of this is this something we need because chickenpox does that kill people I mean that doesn't really no, I mean, but, you know, the same the same virus that causes chickenpox causes
1: shingles, you know. So a lot of people at age 50 are recommended to get the shingles vaccine. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, shingles may not kill you, but you don't want it.
0: I had a friend who had it a couple of years ago, and it was very bad. Um, it was miserable.
1: You know, so, I, I, you know, I think that the COVID vaccine is more along the lines of the flu vaccine. You know, people get the flu vaccine uh, every year knowing it's not going to completely protect them from getting the flu. They still may get the flu. Yeah. And to a certain extent, they have to guess every year what they think the genetic variant is going to be with the flu, and that's what they use. And if they're wrong, you know, we could have a bad flu season, you know. But uh, I think that's, you know, the COVID vaccine is, um, let's face it, you know, we, we were forced into, you know, getting something out there. And, uh, you know, I think that if you told most people that, you um, you know, that, uh, you know, call it 20%, you know, but, you know, 20% of the people who are coming down with the virus, um, you know, some, you know, are actually vaccinated against it. That doesn't sound highly effective. Um, But it is highly effective if you think about what have happened if you hadn't given the vaccine. Uh, So I I think that the vaccine um, is something that people should do. uh, um, But You know, it's like, it's like a lot of things. Like I think the anti-vaxxers, the Jenny McCarthy's, that kind of stuff. There's people out there who will swear up and down that vaccines cause autism. And and you can show them studies that clearly show they do not cause autism, um, but they're not going to listen to you.
0: Um, Last thing I wanted to ask was, it's more of an observation from, from my side, but you know, with this COVID thing, we saw these like crisis care standards, the hospitals in this state, other states are, are getting kind of overwhelmed. To me, that really shows a bigger problem of—is of, our system just basically built on running predictable numbers? And then, if something happens like this, we just can't—we can't ramp up. I mean, are we just living in this kind of very fragile system that, as long as we don't have a pandemic or as long as there isn't some, you know, massive event that gets a lot of people—I don't know—bombing or something—we just—we just seem to kind of not be able to ramp up, and we're just teetering on this, this kind of line where as long as things don't get bad it's fine but if they do we're kind of screwed is that a concern i
1: i don't i will tell you this i've been in private practice since 2003 this is not the first time i've seen full icus at providence and regional um you know or full hospitals in fact a lot of times providence is full uh um, but this has been beyond that uh you know, they, they, they've had, I mean, I've seen something some days where they have 20, 30 patients waiting for rooms down in the ER. I've never seen anything like that. And for all I know, it's been worse at, on other weeks when I haven't been on call. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I think you can go a lot of ways on this. You know, when the crisis stuff, you know, I started immediately thinking back to my military days when, you know, they train you about triage, uh, on the battlefield and, you know, who you are going to take care of, who you're not going to take care of. Um, and, uh, you know, do you have the space to take care of this person or that person? Um, I, you know, a lot of people brought up the CON, um, that Alaska has, which prevents people from building extra beds and stuff.
0: That's a certificate of need, right?
1: Right. You know, so that, that keeps people, you know, that, that if Providence wants to add 10 beds to its emergency department, it has to go to the state and get approval for it. Uh, there's two sides to this coin. Uh, I'm going to, there was a study out of Dartmouth, um, a done, probably 20 years ago, but they looked at the cost of dying, okay, Mm -hmm. in various parts of the country. And it costs twice as much money to die in Miami as it does in Portland, okay? Mm. The outcomes weren't much different, but there's a couple of differences. In your last six months of life in Portland, you saw an average of three different doctors. In your last six months of life in Miami, you saw an average of Eight doctors. There's twice as many ICU beds per capita in Miami as there are in Portland. And in Portland, you're more, you were more likely to die on hospice. And in Miami, you were more likely to die in the hospital.
0: So more expensive,
1: you know, so, um, exactly. And, you know, but the interesting, you know, there's obviously cultural differences between Miami and Portland. Um, you know, and, you know, you could get into, you know, how that may have played a role in it and stuff. But um, one of the arguments that gets made, um, you know, since you've brought up Canada a couple times, I mean, there was a time where there were, uh, I, and this was a long time ago, I saw something that there were more MRI machines in Minnesota than there were in Canada, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the whole theory behind the certificate of need has been that if you, if you create more um, medical facilities, it costs more. And, and people are, are going to be in, incentivized to use those medical facilities. Uh, you know, is that true? I don't know. You know, this, this may go back to the whole fee for service idea. Is that pushing, um, you know, more stuff to be used? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I, I buy all that, but I, I think it's a very complicated question. I think if you want to attack you know, um, you know, so if you, you got to be careful, I think how you look at it, if you, if you build all that extra space to take care of it, what happens, right? I mean, it, do you
0: leave it there dormant? I guess I guess my observation was we're, we're, we have a system that works until something like this happens and then it's really, really hard to scale it. Um, which, you know, that's a good point about the cost. You start st- making it more scalable, it costs more. You also raise an interesting point and I've, I've read a study um, on this a while back and we spend something like a third of our total medical spend, which is a huge part of the economy as it is, on end of life care, mm-hmm. the last year. And, and this is another one of those kind of things. People, especially in this country, don't want to. I've been to other countries, Russia, you know, all these places are a lot more um, open and accepting of death. Whereas here, it's like, you know, there's people that want to spend a million If it's your own money, that's one thing. But when you're spending a million dollars to keep somebody alive for six months, and this is that whole death panel thing Sarah Palin talked about, which got people very nervous. And frankly, that's, if it's, if it's, it's, it's okay until it's your dad or your mom or your, you know, sibling or whatever but you know we spend so much money on this end of life stuff and why do we do
1: that I, I think it's a very good question if you go all the way back to my adn days i actually wrote a piece on 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 that at one time because we spend all the money on the first five and the last five years of life because we also spent a lot of money in nicus yeah. and, you know and and that kind of stuff which
0: i think is more justifiable because you, you're investing in a person to live their whole life and do something and, you know, be productive where if it's somebody who's, you know, you hear these things where somebody who's 80 getting a hip well, replacement, I don't well, know if that's the best use of the money. The, the interesting thing is the thing that was
1: being called a death panel in the affordable care act was providing a visit specifically for a primary care doctor to talk to their patient about end of life issues. And uh, I will tell you that we're sorely lacking in that um, because people don't want to have that discussion. It's an uncomfortable discussion. And, if you want to talk to somebody about whether or not they want to be resuscitated or something, it's hard to have that discussion, especially once they're already at the point where they're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I do think that that is something that needs to be addressed, um, you know, in this country in that, because you're right, in, in a lot of places, they don't, they don't hang on and keep trying to keep people alive who probably should be let go. Um, but you know, it's interesting, you know, one of the things I, when I was doing research for those pieces back then, um, and this goes to cost and everything else, when dialysis was first started in the United States, it wasn't given to everybody. It was, um, there were, there were committees, uh, at hospitals that would determine whether or not they were going to do dialysis on the patient. And they were called, uh, they were called God Committees, um, which yeah. you could look for, you know, just another name for a death panel, kind of. Um, what eventually happened um, is Medicare decided that they would start paying for dialysis. And the, if I remember right, I can't remember the exact numbers, um, but the projection was that the first three years, um, the first, I think the first 10 years of dialysis were going to cost a billion dollars for Medicare, is what they thought. And they crossed the billion dollar line at just over a year. Um, it's like the fucking pipeline. You, know, you know, they so thought it was gonna be a billion, it cost it, ten billion. You know, and I don't know if those numbers are perfectly right, but the bottom line is they crossed the line of how much they thought it was gonna cost way faster than they thought they were. And you know, I, I think that you know, a lot of people say, Well, prevention, 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 maybe you could cause, you know, create a lot of that stuff. I don't disagree with that, but you know, in the United States, um, you know, you know, we're either, depending on which survey you look at, we're either the first or the second most obese country in the world. We have a lot of diabetes. We have a lot of, you know, things that we do to ourselves. You know, seven of the top 10 um, diseases that we tr- costliest diseases we treat are related to obesity. And we, you know, I mean, if we really want to get at cost, we need to start getting at some of
0: that I stuff. I mean, that, that's something Bill Maher talks about all the time, especially with COVID. He goes, there's these vaccines and that's great but there's also the underlying I mean, who, who is getting really sick. It's, it's older people, but it's also people with comorbidities, um, namely obesity. And you don't hear very many people, you know, cause it's, I don't know, fat shaming or whatever they call it, but you don't hear too many people saying, well, let's get healthy first. Let's try to get healthier. It's, it's the pill, it's the shot, it's the whatever medicine, you know, and, and, you're right, and very few people want to talk about. I mean, I, I myself need to lose a little, need to lose some weight. You so know? do I. You know, well, you you look good. You you, were, you lost some weight, didn't you, a couple of years well, ago?
1: I lost some weight, but you know, I mean, I'm still more than I I should weigh. You know, I, I think that um, I think when you look at cost of medical care in this country, it's an extremely complicated question. You know, I mean, we were talking about pharmacology being thirty percent of the cost of medical care now. Um, I I think it takes I instead of passing the Affordable Care Act and one huge giant thing. I think one of the problems you see in DC is that you pass these huge giant packages that are mosh poshes of stuff. And, you know, and really what you should do is you should pass a lot more smaller targeted bills to fix specific problems. And um, that doesn't happen.
0: Uh, at least that's my opinion. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, it's all about what can we do now to get the credit and for the election and next time and well, I mean, that's that's part of the problem.
1: You know, a lot of people are just don't, they don't want to see that big long-term picture about, okay, how are we going to really fix this problem? Um, and, uh, you know, instead, somebody wants to try to do something to fix something, but they can't get it through unless they give their two buddies something else to throw in there with the bill.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for coming in. I mean, this has been a good conversation. I think talking about this stuff is important. I mean, I think also talking about it with people like you that are doctors is... More important because a lot of the stuff you get out there, it's it's from just, you know, some fucking YouTuber or some person who's just got opinions based on some nothing and then people listen to those people.
1: Uh, at the end of the day, I'm still a
0: stupid stomach
1: doctor. I'm not like one of these smart intensivist guys, but yeah. Well, I'm still, I'm still
0: going to listen to you over, over the guy on YouTube <laughs> who's convi- I, convinced I, I of the biotech conspiracy.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think one thing that has to happen is these discussions have to be more reasonable, you know, and I don't think it, I, I think we're crossing... A level where we're, we're gonna, if you're gonna go after the licenses of somebody else, I, I think that that's not the right approach.
0: Like I said, it feels very, very Soviet.
1: It does. So, well, well if, uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for coming in. We'll, we'll
0: do it again. And if anybody has any GI issues, call Dr. Brian Sweeney and get that. To, and then you gotta do the call. When do I get, I'm 37 in December. Do I need to do that? The, yet, newest,
1: the newest guidelines have moved the age down to age 45. Um, you may need to do it sooner if you're, uh, if you have a family history of colon cancer uh, or significant colon polyps,
0: negative on those. So yeah. I guess I'll be seeing you in about eight, seven years. Yeah, forty-five. Well, thanks All again, right. Brian, Dr. Brian Sweeney, for coming in. We'll do, we'll do it again sometime. All right, sounds thanks. good, Jeff. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Let